Well, I hope uh, all of you have had or are having a, a good new year. This morning is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I am feeling nostalgic, which doesn't happen very often, so I'm just kind of running with it. Um, and so I am actually preaching out of my great-great-grandfather's Bible. This is the Bible that he preached out of um, in the Lansing and Owasso area where he started a couple of missions and a couple of churches. Um, helped start a, a college that's over on that side of the state as well. Um, he was a, a great guy from all the stories that I've heard, mostly from his own books. <laughs> so take that for what it is worth. Um, this is the King James Version, and so I'm going to be giving you the text that we'll be using. Does anybody still use the King James Version here? Anybody have one? couple of people. Are you still using King James Version? Uh, well, I have. Ask what you have. You use it. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Um, and so I'll, I'll be giving those, but I, I invite you to turn if you wish uh, in your own scriptures or on your phone, whatever it is that you use to First Peter. Um, what inspired this sermon is actually uh, a, an event that happened to me many years ago in Tennessee. Uh, this is kind of a standalone sermon. Next Sunday, we'll be kicking off a new series and that series I am very excited about. I'm going to be sharing with you a lot of my uh, uh, revelations from my doctoral studies this past semester, which sounds really boring, but it's not, hopefully. Um, we'll be talking about how to practice our faith. And so that's what we'll be focusing on today. But today we'll be focusing on First Peter. Anyway, uh, back in Tennessee, down in Tennessee, uh, one of my favorite couples in the church was Mr. and Mrs. Junker. And I love Mrs. Junker because Mrs. Junker loved conspiracy theories. And if you know me, I love conspiracy theories. I mean, who doesn't believe a good conspiracy theory? Come on. Come on. I saw a comedian uh, uh, talking about this the other day. And he said, like, the government's in charge of all of the people. How many people are in the United States? I don't know. Does anybody know? What would you say? 325 million people. I'm responsible currently for two people. I've lied to both of them many times. Right? You get the implications there, don't you? Anyway, uh, we would, I would go over to their house and I would sit down and Mrs. Junker and I would talk conspiracy theories. But there was this one moment, this one time, where uh, Dell broke in. And he, uh, Mr. Junker, Dell, he was a consummate Christian gentleman. I never heard him raise his voice, never saw him be rude to anyone. He was constantly always on his best behavior. And as Mrs. Junker and I sat down, we started like going on about the Bilderbergs or something. I don't remember what it was. Mr. Junker, who normally just kind of kicks back in his chair, and his lazy boy, and just naps through it all. <laughs> he stops us, and he says, that can wait. I have a question. And I was, I was taken aback. I was like, wow, well, this must be important. And he looks at me with some of the, one of the most intense looks I've ever seen with anyone, and he says, I need to know that I have done enough to be saved. And it took me back for a second. I thought to myself, because of anyone in the room who's safe, it's Dell. Like, uh, but he began to talk to me about, about uh, you know, uh, we didn't do enough for the Lord. We, we, you know, we went on these vacations. We did all this stuff, and, and we could have spent that money in missions. We could have gone. What, mo- what more do I need to do? This was burdening his soul, and maybe he had some kind of premonition because it wasn't much longer after that that he, uh, that he passed on. Uh, into the next life. And so I was really uh, humbled by that. I was startled by that question. I was younger then. 
um, but I'm still fairly young, and I'm just humbled by that moment as I think about it, uh, the honesty and the intensity and the severity. Our lives go by really quick, guys. It was 2018, just another day, a couple days ago, and that year went fast. And this year looks like it's going to go faster. And it's filling up, isn't it? It's already filling up our calendars, our phones. You have new apps that are giving more attention, taking more of your attention. Everything is just, it just feels like this machine that's just spinning out of control and it's going to catch us. It's going to catch us. And before you know it, we'll be talking about 2020. Especially if you are in our phase of life where there's little kids and there's lots of school stuff and there's lots of activities and we're thinking about vacations. You've got jobs and, 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 you're, and you're busy every night of the week. Let me just plead with you to remember that the only thing that will matter this year is what you do for God. Everything else will just be something that you forgot about. And when you reach that age and I have to preach your funeral... You're going to wish you did more for God. And so that's just, I just, I was reflecting on that as this new year starts and that moment I had with Mr. Junker. But I want to do my best impression of Joel Osteen this morning. I don't know how good it's going to be, but it's my impression of it. Um, And I want to encourage you. Because one of the things that I find so often in Christian folks is we often feel, and just maybe people in general, we just feel like we're not enough. We feel like we're not good enough. We feel like we haven't done enough. And because of that feeling, I sense that maybe that's why we continually add more things to our lives. Maybe if we felt and understood how deeply valued and loved we were by God and how needed we were by the church, the other things that we kind of, the junk we fill the cracks of our lives up with, we would sweep those out and leave room for the Lord. And so I want to read these, uh, I want to work through the first uh, section of First Peter because Peter is just, it's beautiful. And I love the way the King James puts it, and so I wanted to, I wanted to share that with you. I'm going to put that up here just in case you're not um, rocking a hundred-year-old Bible. <laughs> so here we go. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Peter, and you might remember who he is, an important apostle, one of the closest friends of Jesus. And he writes this letter to a a group of churches, a group of people here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Binthia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace Unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again, born again, unto a, a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. And that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That is a beautiful set of verses. 
And I hope as we uh, spend our time together in these verses today that you can catch the grouping and power of it. Notice that he begins by calling them strangers. Some of your Bibles might say exiles or aliens. This is to say he is writing to all of these Christians in all of these different places in Asia and minor, and yet he says to them, you are strangers. He doesn't identify them as the Christians at this place or this place. He doesn't identify them there, but rather you are a stranger. You who are in your own homes are not at home. That in and of itself is a conversation to be had, isn't it? That you who live in Portage don't feel at home in Portage. You who might have been born into America are not at home in America. That wherever you land on this ball that we call earth, you, if you belong to Christ, are strange. And you're strangers. And any time you sit down and you say, wow, I feel really at home here, that's a warning bell. That's a warning bell. You ought not feel at home until Christ is Lord because your eyes are constantly looking out for the injustices that happen across, across our world. It is a letter then, this, this letter here is a letter to those who are hungering for more, those who are not content but they sense that there's something wrong and they want that something wrong to be fixed not only in themselves, but in all those around them throughout the world. And I love these verses. And as, as I'm going to break, I'm going to give you kind of a, like a bullet point breakdown of, of the things that are listed in these verses. And I want you to ask yourself the question, as you think of yourself as a stranger who senses there's something deeply amiss in everything around you, even in yourself, and that there's a hunger for something more, I want you to ask the question as you see these things laid out, what has God done and what have you done? You with me? What has God done? And what you've done. Thank you, Kelly. Take her example. Here we go. He starts off talking to these Christians. He begins by saying they are elect of the foreknowledge of God. That God knew something and there is, it is happening apart from you. They are sanctified by their good works. Right? No. Thank you. No. They're sanctified by what? The Spirit. The Spirit is what has come upon you. And the Spirit, by His own power and will, has made you holy. Those of you here today who are Christians, you are holy. You are not only made for holiness, but you are, as the Bible says again and again, hagias. You are saints. You are holy ones in the world. You have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. You have been blessed by God. You have been begotten of God by or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now you have an incorruptible inheritance. And I'm sure that you're all familiar with the word inheritance. It's a beautiful word. It means that somebody else did the work and you got the blessing. Praise the Lord, right? Maybe you've received that. That means that your father, your grandfather, your grandmother, your mother, somebody before you has done the work and they have passed on to you something. That God has passed on to you an inheritance. Which is why Jesus says, why don't you start storing up riches in heaven where God keeps them and holds them in wrath, moth and rust and, and, and constant updates that are too big for my phone to even take. So I have to go to T-Mobile to buy a new one. Why? Are we storing up treasures here? 
Why are we so focused on the things that are here when we know they are just passing away and you're just waiting for the next sale to replace it? You have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiable, unremovable. It is held by God himself. And we are kept, some of your Bibles might say guarded. We are kept by God's power. And finally, finally we get to something that y'all are a part of, that we do, and right there, through faith. All of this, God, 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 you. That's powerfully encouraging, isn't it? If you think for a second that you aren't enough, God couldn't love you, God couldn't forgive you, you haven't done enough, you aren't enough. Here's your bit relentless trust. Relentless trust. Do you see the power of Peter's argument over and over again? He's noting the ways in which we are kept, we are guarded, we are are secured in God. And that the the, the scriptures over and over again talk about how God's love comes from. In fact, John says this, we love because he first loved us. That the love of God appeared in your life at one moment. I don't know if you were 7 or 17 or 77. I don't know how old you were, but at one point, God's love showed up. And you said, I can't help but love God that way. I can't help but respond to God with that love. That's what it's all about. Peter, or Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Romans. He says, while we were God's enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to ransom us and buy us back from death and the devil and our own sins. God loves you so much. Do you think he's just going to let you go? Dear brothers and sisters, I hope you hear Peter's point If we are saved, if we are raised up from the grave on the last day and so to escape the fiery judgment that awaits the ungodly, it will not be done because of the force of our will. It will be done only by the power and mercy and might and grace of Almighty God. That's good news because I botched last year, guys, a lot. And I'm planning to do it again this year. More as I know that that might happen this year. Of course, we're striving to do better. We're striving to be greater. We're striving to be more holy. Now, Peter writes this as an old man. We usually date this letter late, and I can't help if he's thinking back to his past mistakes as he's writing these words of such grace and hope and love. He might even be remembering that one situation. You might remember the story. Maybe you learned it as a like VBS or Sunday school or something like that, where the disciples, they're all on the boat, and they're out in the Sea of Galilee. And because of the way Sea of Galilee fits geographically, these storms like, kind of just come rushing down upon it suddenly. So you, you'll be smooth sailing, and then all of a sudden, the, it's cacophony. Like the waves are raging, the, the sails are flapping, and the disciples are terrified, and they're trying to batten down the hatches. I don't know what that means, but they say that... <laughs> To ask Eric, I just realized I have no idea what that means. I, you close whatever doors are there. Yeah, I, close enough. There you go. <laughs> and they're freaking out, right? Because it's a storm. And, and it's pretty easy for those things to capsize. But all of a sudden, none of the storms, none of the waves, none of the lightning, none of the thunder, none of that matters at all because they see a ghost, Right? Coming across the waves, there he is, this apparition moving towards them, and they all cry out, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. And through the thunder, through the noise, through the waves and the water, a familiar voice, do not be afraid, it is I. And Peter, 
blessed Peter, where in the world does he come up with the idea to shout back out, if it's you, Lord, let me walk on the water too. That just seems like a stupid idea. Like it just, there's nothing about that that sounds appealing to me. And yet, Peter, I, I love Peter. He's so impetuous. If you can do it, then I can do it. If you're there, I want to be there. I don't care what the waters look like. I don't care what the storm looks like. And so Jesus says, come out. And Peter walks out into the water. Now, let me ask you the question. How much of Peter's ability kept him on top of that water? He just stepped out of the boat and hoped for the best, right? But then he looks around. He looks around Man, these waves are big. That lightning's bright. That thunder's loud. The year's about to get real scary, real stormy, real quick. And he starts to sink. And so he does the one thing you ought to do when you find yourself drowning. Lord, save me. And Jesus is there. And how much of Peter's ability, worth, power, works, bring him back up? Back onto the water. Zero. Jesus reaches down and out of his grace saves them. Peter calls you strangers. You aren't supposed to fit. Because you're the kind of foolish people that step out of boats when the storm's going on. And you're the kind of people who have the faith. The people who understand that when the squalls of sickness or death or debt or on future certainties with your job or family troubles or maybe your own inner turmoil, mental health issues, whatever it might be that you're wrestling with, you're struggling with, Lord save me, is all God wants to hear. That's a powerful message. That's good news. Peter is going to, throughout this letter, if we continued reading through it, he's really going to come down hard on these guys. He's got a lot of exhortation, critique. You're doing it wrong. You need to sort yourselves out kind of message to them. But he wants to start off with this. You're still kept by God. You're still kept by the power of God. In fact, throughout the the New Testament, if you've made it your goal this year to read through the Bible, I hope you have. It's a wonderful thing to do. As you read through the letters of the New Testament written to all these different churches, they are full of correction and rebuke, and yet there's a fundamental assumption that goes on by all of those letter writers, whether they're talking about John or Peter or Jude, any of these letter writers, there's an assumption that the community of faith is the children of God. They are saved, and they write these letters to push us. In fact, some beautiful lines here. Hebrews 6, 9. Though we speak to you in this way, this harsh rebuke that's coming to those people, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. 1 Corinthians 2 and 8, you might remember the Corinthian church was a little bit, a little bit of a mess. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God and that the whole world is lying under the power of the evil one. And yet within the midst of that darkness, there is a people, a people who are not perfect, a people who are saved. Not because they are so wonderfully savable, but because God is so wonderful to us. Peter says with confidence that we can have this relentless trust. We can keep it because God is faithful to us. 
And he knows that there are trials and tribulations coming. So take a look at the next two verses, verses 6 and 7 here. Verses 6 and 7. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if, uh, if needs be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, your faith being much more precious than even gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Because we are tempted in our especially capitalistic society to put a price tag on everything, even relationships. How many of you have ever said, it's not worth my time? Anybody? And how many of you said that when you talked about a person? You commodified that person. That person is worth money, and it's not worth enough. Here, faith is more precious than any other commodity. It, is, it is, outstrips gold itself. And how many of us have, have really labored over our faith, fretted over our faith, worried over our faith, sought to share our faith? That is the thing that matters the most, Peter says. And he says, because faith is so valuable, it will be tested. This year, you are going to experience a test. You're going to experience a struggle. And there are three kinds of temp, uh, tests. The first is the temptation that comes from the devil himself. It comes from the evil one. It comes from the world, which is under his sway and his influence. And all that the devil can do, though, is put something in front of you, right? I mean, wasn't that what happened with Eve in the garden? She's standing there looking at the tree, and she decided it looked like good for food. Now, if there were Brussels sprouts hanging on that tree, you would have said, no thanks. I don't want that. No good. But it wasn't. It was something that looked good to her. And because it looked good to her, she desired it. Which brings us to the second thing. The first temptation is one that is external. But even that isn't really what matters. What matters is what is internal. As James says, we are pulled away when we desire what the world has. If someone puts something in front of you and you don't want it, it's not a temptation. When somebody puts something in front of you and you want it, that's where the sin lies. It comes from you. The battle Brothers and sisters, as Peter or as Paul puts it at the end of Ephesians, is not with sort of the, the domain of darkness. Our, our, our thing is not with flesh and blood. It's with the fact that we want what the devil has. We want what the world has. And so this year, what you need to do is do that kind of internal work where you learn holiness to such an extent that when somebody puts something in front of you that is sin, you say, that's disgusting. It's Brussels sprouts. I don't want it. That's the task. The temptations that are come, going to come before you, uh, they emerge from you. And when you recognize that, you can begin to do the real battle that needs to happen. Falling on your knees and praying, filling your mind with the word of God, being around brothers and sisters in Christ who can kind of push you along and pull you along and sometimes even drag you kicking and streaming along towards holiness. That third thing, that third trial that Peter is talking about is what happens when we fail and when we fall because we will fail and we will fall this year. And when you fail and when you fall, God will bring discipline to your heart. If you are a true believer, if you are a true Christian, if you are in Christ and you sin, you will feel godly guilt. And godly guilt is a good thing. Our culture kind of is beginning to so talk, they use the word shame as though it's a bad thing. There's a, when you feel guilt or shame for doing something wrong, that is good. That means you have a conscience. I want everyone to have a conscience, Right? 
And what happens in godly guilt is you feel that, that guilt, you feel that shame, and you say to yourself, I must run to Jesus. Ungodly, satanic, evil shame and guilt is the one that when you commit it and you feel it and you experience it and you say, God can't ever forgive me or love me, that is not of the Lord. That is of the evil one. Esri is a, a rotten little one-and-a-half-year-old. She is, like, she has these moments that are, like, that are these flashes of electricity of either just, like, this kid is lovely and brilliant and so sweet, and then she's just this terror. Um, that, Emery was not that way, and so we're really trying, as parents, trying to figure out how to, how to manage this. And last night, I, 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 Esri kept on screaming and yelling, and I was like, no more yelling, no more screaming, stop, 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 stop. And so finally, I pick her up, with the dad voice, and I bring her into her room, and I put her in timeout, and she is in timeout, and she is mad about being in timeout. And she is yelling, and she is screaming, and she is crying. And it increases, right? How many parents, you know what I'm talking about? Grandparents, aunts, uncles. It's going up and up and up, and finally there's a moment of desperation. There's a moment of breaking where I hear her cry out, Daddy. And I go to that room, And I pick her up, and I kiss her tears away, and I say, Daddy loves you. And if this is our experience as wicked and sinful human beings, how much more does your heavenly Father wish to pick you up, to kiss away your tears, to say, your Father loves you? If you think that you are not enough, God begs to differ. The temptations will come. The failures will come. And at the end of every failure is the Father God who through Jesus and the power of the Spirit wishes to lift you out from the pit and to carry you on. We hear such harsh words from the Scriptures, words of judgment and hell, not because God doesn't love you, but because He loves you so much. Because He loves you so much, He can't, He doesn't desire eternity without you. Which is why Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may also be. So that God can dwell in our midst and we might behold his glory as his people, as his children. And that he might wipe away every tear from our eye. Peter says in verses 8 and 9, last part of this little section here we'll read this morning. Whom, of course, speaking of Jesus Christ from the verse before, whom having not seen, you love. In whom, though now you see him not, you believe. You rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of joy, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. If I had my elder brother in the faith, uh, here this morning, and he asked me, what, must, what more must I do? What do I have to do? I would say, everything and nothing. It's a beloved paradox, isn't it, of the Christian faith. We aren't done working until our Sabbath rest in glory. And the risks don't stop from beginning to end of this life. As John Bunyan put it so eloquently in the Pilgrim's Progress, there is a gate leading to hell from the very gates of heaven itself. 
That there is always the chance that we might say to God, no more, and wander and walk away. And yet the scriptures call us again and again to faithfulness, again and again to mercy, again and again to understand that it is by the love, power, and grace of God that God sweeps us up. And that we respond to his love by though we haven't seen him, yet we love him. And our love produces faithfulness, and our faithfulness produces action, and our action produces endurance, and our endurance produces times of testing, and the time of testing produces Christians who are worthy of heaven. Because you want to be worthy of heaven. So we strive, not believing that somehow our works are going to win more of God's love. God has already poured out more love than you could even imagine. What more can God do to show you his love? His son died for you, was risen from the dead for you, rose to the right hand of the Father for you, imbues you with the power of the Holy Spirit to let you know he loves you. What more could he do? Nothing more. And yet he calls you to action, to faithfulness, to work in his fields reaching out to the lost so that more people who don't understand or know how much God loves them, don't know how sin breaks them, can be brought into the light by you. What a powerful and wonderful mission God has set before us. I don't know that I could do better to end this sermon as the band comes up than just reading one last time our beautiful text. Listen to these words. The words of the man who stood with Jesus. The man who walked on the waters to Jesus. The man who failed as he walked on the waters and began to sink and needed Jesus to lift him up. The man who who saw Jesus on the night of his trial and denied him. The man who is still in the grace of God writes to the church this letter. And he says this, To you strangers scattered throughout the world, even as far as Portage, Michigan, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And may it be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us, born again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiable, and it doesn't fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. You who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so we rejoice greatly, though, even if this season is heavy because of the manifold temptations of life. That trial that you're enduring right now, that trial of your faith, because your faith is more precious than even gold that passes away, though it's tried by fire, might be found to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ when he comes again. And though we haven't seen him, We love him. Though now we see him not, we believe in him. And we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of our faith. The salvation of our souls. Let's stand as we sing.
glory and honor and praise to our God.